Hello and welcome to the German New Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Sell, and today I am joined by a guest speaker from Germany, Matt Johnson. In our discussion, we will be talking about brain involvement from the GNM perspective. What goes on in the brains? We'll talk about brain tumors, headaches, and migraines as well. This call was recorded over Skype, so the audio isn't 100% perfect, but the message comes through loud and clear. Please keep in mind that the GNM podcast is intended for educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Welcome, Matt Johnson, to the German New Medicine podcast. Uh, Matt, if you could just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you, and then how you got into GNM. Yeah, hi, Melissa. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, so I'm I'm from Germany. I'm 27 years old now, and um, I'm electrical engineer at Siemens. So since five years already, and um, I got to know the German New Medicine probably four years ago now. Actually, when I met my girlfriend, um, when I met her, uh, she told me that she has a some sort of disease, and uh, one day she just told me that she went to doctors in the past a lot, and they always told her, oh, you got only to live so many months, like three months or nine months, and this never was true, and she she just stopped from one time to go to the doctors because it was just, yeah, it bored her. It was just, I don't know, just lies what they told her. So they they found actually a a brain tumor inside of her head, and that gave her a lot of blackouts in the past and a lot of headache for sure. So um, when, when she told me that, I was... I was actually, yeah, kind of surprised that such a young girl can have such tumor inside her brain. And I did some research and suddenly came across some some uh, book from uh, Dr. Hammer, where he actually um, described, I think, almost the same um, uh, conflict. She she tried she tried to um, tell me what she experienced in the past. And it was a sort of a sexual conflict, and um, I never, I never actually saw her brain scan, but I just can figure how how big it should, it could have been because she had a lot of um, blackouts in the past, especially when there were stressful situations. So when you're in this sympathetic zona um, mode, the stressful mode, and um, well, I I read this book or I read through the lines and. Hummer actually described a lot of um, experience he had with patients, with um, youngers also, who who had the same um, experience or conflicts in the past. And um, yeah, there were a lot of advices from doctor to to tell her uh, to to do um, the surgery, either through the nose or just cut the 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 head off, right? And she never wanted that. And she was always a person who who doesn't really care about this too much. What the doctor said, he only she only cared about what her parents 
uh, feel in that moment for her for her daughter, right? So, but I think now um, this was her the best. I mean, it was her her healing or her uh, rescue because she never really cared about herself. I mean, it sounds strange now, but the the emotions and feelings or the advices the doctor gave the doctors gave her they weren't really touching her too deeply so she could have still enough of distance right and this was I think also one of the uh, reasons why she actually survived it because they said it's a uh, glioblastoma stage 4 whatever so which is according to the school medicine uh, I think they, they cannot heal, heal this type of thing. They only can give you some some pills where it might uh, prolong your life, but nothing else. So, and and I came across this um, this book as I, as I said, and there was same uh, situations described and experience, and um, so I, I I I showed it to her. See what I've just found here is something from a German doctor who experienced that brain tumors are not leading to death necessarily, and um, so yeah, she she listened to that and she she also um, dealt with this topic and found out that yeah, it's it's true what he's saying because it it perfectly fit to her experience and to what she experienced and described. And so forth, and um, yeah, from from this time on, over the month, the blackouts, which were uh, which uh, were less occurring, and um, yeah, right now after four years, she's perfectly fine, no headaches, no blackouts anymore. It's, it's yeah, it's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, like you said, that's. To find out a young woman has a brain tumor, that's a very terrifying experience to be told. And that's very good that she didn't, you know, listen to the doctors and get scared by their prognosis and what they believe to be true about brain tumors. So that was hugely in her favor that she didn't, you know, let their word carry the most weight for her experience because that's typically what happens. And that is uh, something I want to discuss with uh, you today is the brain involvement when it comes to GNM and understanding the, the five biological laws and what is happening in the brain because it is the mediator between basically what's going on in our outside world and then what goes on in our inside world and the adaptations that the body is making. And so by understanding what goes on in the brain and how the brain is involved in literally every biological program, there's always brain involvement. You know, so here we think that, oh, a brain tumor is like an extra special bad kind of cancer um, from the typical conventional medicine perspective. A brain tumor, I'd say, is probably one of the most terrifying from, you know, an individual's perspective. And to understand exactly why, wh at what point a person gets diagnosed with a brain tumor, understanding headaches. And so, uh, so yeah, that's what I really wanted to talk about today. Yeah, and you also asked me about uh, covering some of the history, how Dr. Hamrick uh, discovered 
those homofocuses, right? This is how we call it in, in English, right? So yeah, I, I, yeah, probably can start with some uh, historical background if you if you like. So the first uh, homophobus he found was actually in a 1982. So he, he kind of started uh, researching around nine, uh, 1980, and he saw the first homophobus um, on the patient when they did a full scan on the organ uh, side of the brain. The, the homophobus, by the way, derived from the opponents who called them the W's uh, homophobia. Um, so, but he, he experienced a lot of challenges in, in, in doing research on, on this focus, on this focus as, as he discovered them. Because in that time, um, he only concentrated his work on, on cancer. And you know from new, German New Medicine, there are also cancer equivalents available, so which, which you won't see in, in the organs so much. So it was, it was not, also not usual if you get the diagnosis of any cancer that the school medicine will, will perform a brain scan. So that's again something. So he had maybe the diagnosis in the organ, but there were no brain, brain scans taken. Also in that time, brain scans were very expensive and the, the, the um, devices were also very expensive. But, but he started um, with a topography, um, let's say a description of the different locations of those foci. Um, but again, it was very difficult because sometimes Amos saw focuses in the brain, which was actually referring to another conflict which was not diagnosed. So he had on the one side a diagnosis canceled, say, in the kidneys, and then he found actually two foci in the brain or three. And then he said, yeah. So, so it was very hard for him to actually determine location of the different brain relays. Also, um, every homophobia or focus is, um, is only very good to see during the healing phase when, when there's an edema, when there's water uh, inside of this um, focus, but not in the, uh, not in the conflict active phase. Especially if you know that radiologists, they will use iodine contrast um, substance to lighten those, those how they call brain tumors up. And this is only possible um, in the healing phase. And, but in the conflict active phase, you have very sharp concentric rings. And those you found, but always the radiologists, they, they said, these are just malfunctions by the brain scan. Plus, yet also, because as I said, they just said they are just W's things or artifacts, how they call it, of the brain scan. They had no support from, from these radiologists because they wouldn't not believe this theory. Plus, if they would, they would have lose, lose their jobs. And or got no more patients from the hospitals, so this was also another fight he had. Um, and again, like I said, they only had 
done the brain scans when there was a diagnosis of brain metastasis or brain tumors. So, and then it's really funny. Um, he he did more research on the um, conflict active phase, which is then a sharp concentric ring, and then he went to to Siemens, who's actually building those brain scans. They're mostly working, but they're not working in the um, medical sector. However, kind of funny. Um, and with Siemens, they determined um, criterias where in the brain scan you can determine if it's really a malfunction of the brain scan or how they call it an artifact or not. So, so they they said that if these they did a um, backup scan in the nuclear magnetic resonance system. And if this also show a concentric formation, then sure, this needs to be, or this is a homophobic. Or also, if the rings, the concentric rings, are dented in the brain scan, this points to a space-consuming lesion, so a, yeah, a big, a big uh, conflict shock event. And then also, um, if the rings show a definite sign of clear, you also it also points to a real homophobic. Um, sometimes you had the concentric rings exactly in, in the middle of the brain, but in this case, uh, or in the photo I said, uh, in this case, this is really a malfunction, but they say if the rings are not exactly in the center of rotation of this brain scan, then this is also no um, artifact or malfunction. So again, they they defined seven uh, criterias, and how I actually wanted to to present these find these criterias uh, to radiologists on on multiple uh, patients. But the the conference were were always uh, postponed, and then it was just cancelled because yeah, there were <laughs> a lot of opponents for his uh, yeah findings. Wow, that's so, very interesting. Um, I do want for the audience just to frame the understanding of what we're talking about when when there's a conflict. It affects the person at the level of the psyche, the brain, and the organ all at the same time. So a conflict shock occurs and the psyche of the individual perceives whatever that danger is and immediately there is an impact in a specific region of the brain. And so there's an impact in the brain, these concentric rings that can be seen on a CT scan. And so Dr. Hammer, the medical doctors, they actually kind of made a joke of it, is that right? About the Hammer focus was um, more of something they made fun of him for, for thinking that that was an actual impact in the brain. They just said, oh, that's an artifact. It's not an actual impact in the brain. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And so he was made fun of for his observation. And what he found was that so during the conflict, so when the person is actively in the state of fear where they're preoccupied with whatever has gone on in the brain, on the brain scan, it can be seen as concentric rings in a very specific region. And now the region of the brain 
that the impact is depends on what type of conflict is it. Is it some type of indigestible morsel conflict? Is it a separation conflict? Is it territorial? And so each different brain region controls the function of different organs. And so you can look at a brain scan, and I know that there are people who are trained to read the brain scans and can tell just by looking at it whether a person has you know, a bleeding ulcer or if they have a, you know, a rash on their left leg, specifically based on what they can see in the brain scan, because there are criteria that you can look at and see, oh, this is, you know, in conflict activity. Once a person resolves their conflict and goes into healing, the brain scan the impact in the the brain region, it fills with edema because all healing happens in a fluid environment. And so the brain swells. And like you said, that's when it's easier to see on the brain scan itself when there's edema in the region. And then um, the healing crisis is what happens halfway through the healing phase. And that's typically when a person has some type of event, some type of terrible migraine or a heart attack or a seizure and the whole purpose of that is the sympathetic stress push to squeeze the edema out of the brain out of the organ region so that it can go back to normal so that um, during the second half of the healing phase is restoration where there's glial cells and glia is basically the connective tissue of the brain you could think of it as scar tissue and it goes in to restore and repair the region and that's what um, ends up getting diagnosed as a brain tumor, correct? Once it's already been restored with the glia? Right, exactly. And and one thing I want to mention, um, glia, as you said, it's a connectivity tissue like we have in, in other parts of our body too. It's simply the same and has the same um, uh, work to do in the brain or in the, in the body. And actually, brain tumors doesn't exist, this is what we found out, because um, they always say that there is um, tissue multiplying, but this glia is actually not able to to get multiplied after birth, so so it's actually only um, the complete, the conjunctive tissue, yeah, as you said, it's the conjunctive tissue of the brain. Yeah, so that's really interesting to think about in the context of here we think that when we discover a brain tumor, so a person most likely has been having ongoing headaches, some kind of maybe blurry vision or neurological symptoms, and because we scan so much and more frequently, um, people will get diagnosed with these brain tumors, which from the GNM perspective, all it is essentially is it's a scab, it's a scar, it's the proof that something had gone on in the body, but now it's actually restored. And it's the, the, the major complications from getting diagnosed with a brain tumor. Wouldn't you say it's just, it's the fear, it's the panic, it's the, um, the additional uh, diagnosis shocks that initiate other conflicts that can uh, increase the, the problems for that individual? I was talking about, yeah, the conflict, the, 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 con- the diagnosis shock where there's another conflict um, starting, which uh, the school medicine says that's that's medicine. So, and then they they want to tell us that these these cancer cells they even transform. Like if you have something in the bone tissue, now it starts to transform to get a lung tissue, which is 
completely a different type of tissue in the body. So, so how can they how can they move and how can they transform? Nobody can tell and nobody can explain because yeah. But they always tell these are metastases, right? So the metastasis theory is very interesting because there is actually very little proof of it from the medical side. Um, my understanding of it for for many years is, oh, the cancer is a certain malignant, terrible type of cancer, and the cancer cells break off, and they go through the bloodstream, and they go through the lymph, and then they take up residence in other parts of the body, in the brain, in the bones, in the lungs, and that's the understanding that the vast majority of people have regarding their cancer, and that's why they, even after they have their treatment, they almost never can have a true peace of mind because years later, so many people have are re-diagnosed with cancer. Oh, that cancer was never gone, they'll say, and it metastasized to other regions. And the evidence and proof for that is very minimal, minimal in the medical perspective. But from GNM, the GNM perspective, it makes perfect sense because it's additional conflict shocks um, that are occurring that are initiating new biological programs whether it's a self-devaluation affecting the bones or the lymphatic tissue, a death fright conflict from the conflict shock affecting the lungs, and they each have a very understandable cause, whereas in medicine it's completely random, completely unexplainable how a breast cancer cell um turns into like you said a you know a bone tumor how does that even happen one is a cell addition and the other is a cell loss and and then with the brain you know how could a cancer cell pass the blood brain barrier is also another interesting thing to take into consideration right Melissa and also uh, if people donate blood and they sometimes say yeah maybe the cancer cells moving through the blood or the lymph um, but none of these blood gets tested for, for cancer cells. I mean, no one ever saw one cell in the, in the blood. So Maynard can give evidence if the blood might be full of cancer cells because it's just not possible. For most lay people, when it gets explained to them how metastasis happens, they think, oh, there, there must be a clear mechanism. Like, there must be cancer cells in the blood. But like you said, if it's not, if we don't look at blood tests or we don't look at donated blood to see if there's cancer cells in them. Also, um, the way that we, that medicine tests for the presence of cancer, it's an indirect test similar to like an antibody test. It's not direct observation of something happening. It's a, a test that says uh, whether or not certain proteins are in a certain area, but it's not actual cells in a region. And I think that that can be very misleading for people because they don't understand kind of the nuance of medical testing and how they come up with the answers that they come up with. And they think it's very straightforward and basic that this cell breaks off and goes here, and then it causes a new cancer, a new problem. Um, but that kind of simplistic understanding is very inaccurate. It's not biologically plausible, and there's no evidence for it. Right. The only statistics available, and they doesn't fit 100%. So it's not science what school medicine is. It's only hypothetical thing. And also, I wanted to mention that with those uh, metastases that um, usually 
usually the 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 patient who suffered from any cancer will then start to get lung cancer. So this is also evident because lung um, refers to a death fear, which is mostly coming from the uh, diagnosis shock. And also statistically, it's 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 an evidence from the school of medicine that lung cancer is the yeah the so-called last cancer before the the patients die, um, because yeah it's it's just they fear of their life and they and this refers to the lung. So that's really interesting to think about when you when when you really understand GNM and you really see that every every type of symptom that you have, there is brain involvement. You could almost say that every person who's had some kind of symptom has, quote, had a brain tumor. And But the thing is, is you'll never find it because unless you're having neurological symptoms, no one's ever going to look at your brain. You know, if you're having um, stomach pains and, you know, you're suffering from IBS, no one's going to say, oh, well, let's look at their brain too. And But there is going to be some level of brain involvement for every single symptom that a person experiences because you can't have tissue changes um, at the organ level without having brain involvement. The brain is the mediator. So I think just realizing that because we do think that, oh my goodness, a brain tumor is such a serious and horrible thing, but really it's just a normal consequence of some type of conflict shock it's not it's not any worse than you know having a a runny nose it's the body is responding to information that it received and it's going through its normal biological process right and as you said the school medicine is only looking on one level and from the german medicine perspective we got actually three levels which are acting synchronously so there, they are looking only at the the organs' perspective. That there's something growing or multiplying, right? And as you said, there's always a correlation to the brain, but also to the psyche, as you said before. So in conflict activities, you have the patients have um, think he, he sh- the patient thinks a lot of the conflict has cold hands, um, no appetite, stuff like that, doesn't sleep. So this is also a level which can be used as as determine whether someone is conflict active. Or or uh, then in the uh, resolution phase, the patient will become very warm or warm hands will be there. There will be very good appetites, sleeping a lot, and so forth. So also from this level, you can determine which phases someone is in. Yeah, and so I wanted to talk a little bit just about headaches because headaches are such a common problem. Um, I had headaches all throughout being a teenager. My mom had headaches chronically and migraines. And, um, you know, headaches, simply put, is, you know, not enough space in the cranium. Is There's pressure occurring because there's healing going on. So during the first half of the healing phase, when that brain impact swells up with water, essentially, that edema, that fluid, that healing fluid is creating pressure within the head. And so a person can even kind of have an idea, like whether the location of the head that their headache occurs. So if it's like 
above, like in the forehead on the right-hand side versus above the ear on the left-hand side, um, you can have an idea of the tissue area that's in healing, which is another interesting factor when it comes to understanding what's going on in your body at a given time. Right, exactly, yeah. Now, a migraine is when it involves the meninges. And so the meninges are the tissues, the protective tissues surrounding the brain. And so if you have a certain type of conflict that's affecting a certain area of the brain, so say um, uh, somewhere in the cerebral cortex, so if you have an issue with the thyroid ducts, so a powerlessness or conflict, um, the pharyngeal ducts, if you have a frontal fear conflict, bronchial mucosa, um, laryngeal mucosa, the visual cortex, if you're having a conflict in one of those regions of the cerebral cortex, and during the healing, the meninges get involved, and the meninges can cause that extremely, when, when they are swollen, that extremely severe, horrible, head-splitting, um, terrible type of headaches, but again, that is simply a sign that the body isn't healing. But most people, because they don't understand tracks and triggers, they don't understand the initiating conflict, they just, you know, they just say, oh, every so often uh, I get a migraine or once a month or certain times of year or when this stressful thing happens, I get a migraine. But they don't see the connection between what was going on in their life, the tracks and triggers that they might have been exposed to. And so that um, for a person, if you're out there listening and you have chronic headaches or you have chronic migraines, there is something for you to discover about the, the, the migraines, about the pattern, about what happens. And it's not simply about, oh, just avoiding the food. Uh, the best recommendation would be to let's discover the conflict that is getting reactivated again and again, causing you to continually have this swelling in your brain during the healing phase. And so I think that a headache is a really you know clear indication that you've got some type of conflict that is continually getting reactivating, reactivated and has not been resolved yet. Yeah, exactly. And and one 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 thing for me uh, is uh, if we want to experience or yeah get to the bottom of those triggers and tracks, um, might be helpful to to make a journal of of the symptoms you have and when do you have them and what you experience in that day or what you ate during the day. So that helps you to to think of all the circumstances where the symptom occur and might help you to to find out what's really the initial the initial trigger was. Yeah, journaling is extremely helpful during the, you know, conflict discovery process to see, you know, what is going on with me when I have a migraine versus when I don't. And I think the the fact that the the migraine occurs during the healing phase, there's a, enough time that lapses that a lot of people if they're not if they don't know what to look for, they're not seeing the connections. And so they say, "Oh, when I eat this certain food, maybe they understand a connection between eating a certain food um, and a migraine, but not necessarily the thought process, not necessarily the initiating conflict that's kind of operating in the background of their mind. And that's one of the, the, the wonderful things about the GNM work and about the, the things that you discover. It's a really a process of self-understanding. Who am I? Why do I respond to things the way that I do? What happened to me in my past that's causing me to experience 
you know, myself, the world, and other people in this particular way. And so when you understand yourself in that way, it, it all begins to make, it just all makes so much sense. That's what I love about German New Medicine is it's like, oh, no wonder my body responded that way. I was thinking about this. This was causing me to be in a conflict active mode. My hands were cold when I think about this. You know, I was listening to my body and then, oh, I, you know, I, I got around friends that I really enjoy being around and I felt really good and I was really relaxed and, oh, the next day I had the worst headache. And so when you start to see the pattern and you really understand the law of two phases and how the body responds to being in conflict versus when the healing occurs, you really, the, pic, the bigger picture starts to make so much sense. It stops feeling so random and arbitrary, like you can't get a grasp or understand it. And you start to say, oh, wow, this is totally understandable. And you can almost predict it. You're like, oh, I'm feeling really good. And I've, you know, yesterday I was really nervous about that. And you can kind of say, oh, I might have some symptoms. And that just kind of puts your mind at ease, even though the symptoms can be severe and intense. I mean, a headache's never going to feel good, but at least you're not scared of the headache on top of having the pain of the headache. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Pain or, or actually fear, what I'm fear is actually, yeah taking away with this knowledge which is super great with a super with awesome with knowing about the German new medicine and also living that that um, discovery is also yeah just wonderful and then also observing special symptoms on other people around you and then sometimes also ask when they have um, certain issues or pain I just ask them they had this and this a uh, couple of days ago, and then yeah, usually, usually they, they ask me why do you want to know it? I mean, mostly it's it's really something what happened in, a few days ago, and now they're having this you know back pain or whatever something at work happened. The, so yeah, it's it's been amazing to live this experience, uh, uh, this discovery. Yeah, it is. It's it's so freeing. It, you really overcome fear of of being ill. It's totally just a curiosity thing. Like you said, you ask other people, you know, when they've had something going on and the more you get exposed to it, the more you see it at play in your own life, in the lives of other people, you, you really stop fearing sickness, disease, and symptoms. And that is one of the greatest freedoms that anyone can have because fear of illness, fear of um, sickness, fear of death is such a huge fear for so many people you know, because they've lost family members to illnesses in the past. And so they kind of live in, in sort of a semi-constant state of, you know, a fear of symptoms. And when you're free from that, that's such a joy because you don't have to, to concern yourself. You don't have to freak out if your child has a fever. You don't have to freak out, you know, if you are, are feeling unwell because it's simply a response to what's been going on in your life. And so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think we should definitely do this again in the future on other topics. Um, your insights and your story uh, is wonderful to hear, to share with everyone. Any any parting words, anything you'd like to add? No, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And uh, yeah, tomorrow we have another um, regular table here in in the city. Oh, actually, the city next to where I'm living. So yeah, every time, every month we have this and we catch up new and new ideas and new experiences. So yeah, I'd love to, to have more of these podcasts with you and just talk about more 
uh, yeah, new stuff, maybe new new discoveries in this in this area, and yeah, just just living the German new medicine. Thank you. Excellent. Yes, and if you'd like to interact with Matt, he does answer questions and help out in the German New Medicine Self-Healing Support Group. So he is really wonderful to have in there because he's connected with a lot of people in Germany. Um, and, you know, you, you learn from, can you tell us a little bit about who you've learned German New Medicine from, who you train with? I was Helmut Piller. He was actually um, together with Hammer on a long trip Let's say his uh, her his um, daughter was having a big tumor in in the uh, in the body, and there was a lot of news stories in 1995. I was very young at that age, so I don't know, but uh, there were a lot of uh, news stories and how bad parents were, how they told, and and he's giving now seminars in ever since. He's actually the official uh, person. Who was um, he, from Hammer? Who's spreading the the idea and the discoveries in in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland? So he's he's German speaking, and I was at his seminar a couple of uh, weeks ago. So he's a very good guy. He has he's also doing online uh, courses in German. So yeah, he's he's one of the most experienced guy. He's he's not a doctor as well. He's not a therapist. He's he's having but he's having so much experience. It's always good to learn from him. So this is the go-to contact for me here in the German area. Excellent. So for our German listeners, if you um, are in the area, try to uh, hook up with the the seminars, the conferences, the meetup groups that they're doing um, in Germany, and you know to get connected with people who are living the lifestyle. Because over there, um, it isn't necessarily legal. I've heard to to practice. Um, publicly, German New Medicine is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's it's insurance type of thing, right? I mean, you can practice it, but if if you, one of your thousands, one of thousand patients, you're 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 in jail, right? But on the other side, if the school practitioner, school medicine practitioner, is, is one, if one is um, surviving the cancer out of thousands, nothing is happening to them. So. Exactly. Again, it's, not, it's not completely illegal, but if someone is dying, then you're screwed, right, basically. That's why no one is actively promoting that he's the therapist. But, yeah, there are obviously some, some in, the, in the areas here. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about standard of care. You can follow standard of care with a 1,000 patients and all 1,000 of them die, but you don't get in trouble because you followed standard of care. But if you went outside yeah. of standard of care you know, and, and did something different, um, you know, 999 of the patients could survive and the one that died, you'd be in jail because you didn't follow standard of care. You did something outside the norm and so you're in big trouble. And so that's the, you know, that's the amazing thing that you can, and that's really the thing is follow your own understanding. And that's the thing about GNM is you can be your own doctor. When you understand yourself and you understand your body, um, and as long as you're having symptoms that aren't too incredibly severe, which is pretty rare, um, I wouldn't say that most people will have to worry about, you know, huge epicrisis that um, is potentially life-threatening. Obviously, it is a possibility, and that's why, you know, you should work with somebody who knows the potential of, say, a heart attack or something. But for the most part, with general everyday conflicts and symptoms, you could take care of yourself. 
Yeah, definitely. There's nothing, no one between you and your health. No pill, no doctor. So, your responsibility. We have to learn to be responsible again for, for our body and for ourselves. That's, that's the main message. Yes, it is, and it's incredible. Well, thank you again so very much for your time, and I think we'll be doing another one of these very soon. Thank you, Melissa. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.